Chapters 9 and 10 of The Way of All Flesh. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rhonda Fetterman. The Way of All Flesh by Samuel Butler. Chapter 9. Mr. Allaby was rector of Crampsford, a village a few miles from Cambridge. He, too, had taken a good degree, had got a fellowship, and in the course of time had accepted a college living of about four hundred pounds a year and a house. His private income did not exceed two hundred pounds a year. On resigning his fellowship he married a woman a good deal younger than himself, who bore him eleven children, nine of whom, two sons and seven daughters, were living. The two eldest daughters had married fairly well, but at the time of which I am now writing, there were still five unmarried, of ages varying between thirty and twenty-two, and the sons were neither of them yet off their father's hands. It was plain that if anything were to happen to Mr. Allaby, the family would be left poorly off, and this made both Mr. and Mrs. Allaby as unhappy as it ought to have made them. Reader, did you ever have an income at best none too large, which died with you all except two hundred pounds a year? Did you ever at the same time have two sons, who must be started in life somehow, and five daughters still unmarried, for whom you would only be too thankful to find husbands, if you knew how to find them? If morality is that which, on the whole, brings a man peace in his declining years, if, that is to say, it is not an utter swindle, can you under these circumstances flatter yourself that you have led a moral life? And this, even though your wife has been so good a woman that you have not grown tired of her, and has not fallen into such ill health as lowers your own health in sympathy, and though your family has grown up vigorous, amiable, and blessed with common sense, I know many old men and women who are reputed moral, but who are living with partners whom they have long ceased to love, or who have ugly, disagreeable maiden daughters for whom they have never been able to find husbands, daughters whom they loathe, and by whom they are loathed in secret, or sons whose folly or extravagance is a perpetual wear and worry to them. Is it moral for a man to have brought such things upon himself? Someone should do for morals what that old Pecksniff Bacon has obtained the credit of having done for science. But to return to Mr. and Mrs. Allaby. Mrs. Allaby talked about having married two of her daughters as though it had been the easiest thing in the world. She talked in this way because she heard other mothers do so, but in her heart of hearts she did not know how she had done it, nor indeed if it had been her doing at all. First there had been a young man in connection with whom she had tried to practice certain manoeuvres, which she had rehearsed in imagination over and over again, but which she found impossible to apply in practice. Then there had been weeks of a whirra-whirra of hopes and fears and little stratagems, which as often as not proved injudicious, and then somehow or other, in the end, there lay the young man bound and with an arrow through his heart at her daughter's feet. It seemed to her to be all a fluke, which she could have little or no hope of repeating. She had indeed repeated it once, and might perhaps with good luck repeat it yet once again, 
but five times over? It was awful. Why, she would rather have three confinements than go through the wear and tear of marrying a single daughter. Nevertheless, it had got to be done, and poor Mrs. Allaby never looked at a young man without an eye to his being a future son-in-law. Papas and mammas sometimes ask young men whether their intentions are honorable towards their daughters. I think young men might occasionally ask papas and mammas whether their intentions are honorable before they accept invitations to houses where there are still unmarried daughters. I can't afford a curate, my dear, said Mr. Allaby to his wife when the pair were discussing what was next to be done. It will be better to get some young man to come and help me for a time upon a Sunday. A guinea a Sunday will do this, and we can chop and change till we get someone who suits. So it was settled that Mr. Allaby's health was not so strong as it had been, and that he stood in need of help in the performance of his Sunday duty. Mrs. Allaby had a great friend, a certain Mrs. Cowie, wife of the celebrated Professor Cowie. She was what was called a truly spiritually-minded woman, a trifle portly with an incipient beard and an extensive connection among undergraduates, more especially among those who were inclined to take part in the great evangelical movement which was then at its height. She gave evening parties once a fortnight at which prayer was part of the entertainment. She was not only spiritually-minded, but as enthusiastic Mrs. Allaby used to exclaim, she was a thorough woman of the world at the same time, and had such a fund of strong masculine good sense. She too had daughters, but as she used to say to Mrs. Allaby, she had been less fortunate than Mrs. Allaby herself, for one by one they had married and left her so that her old age would have been desolate indeed if her professor had not been spared to her. Mrs. Cowie, of course, knew the run of all the bachelor clergy in the university, and was the very person to assist Mrs. Allaby in finding an eligible assistant for her husband. So this last-named lady drove over one morning in the November of 1825, by arrangement, to take an early dinner with Mrs. Cowie, and spend the afternoon. After dinner the two ladies retired together, and the business of the day began. How they fenced, how they saw through one another, with what loyalty they pretended not to see through one another, with what gentle dalliance they prolonged the conversation discussing the spiritual fitness of this or that deacon, and the other pros and cons connected with him after his spiritual fitness had been disposed of, all this must be left to the imagination of the reader." Mrs. Cowie had been so accustomed to scheming on her own account that she would scheme for anyone rather than not scheme at all. Many mothers turned to her in their hour of need, and provided they were spiritually minded, Mrs. Cowie never failed to do her best for them. If the marriage of a young Bachelor of Arts was not made in heaven, it was probably made, or at any rate attempted, in Mrs. Cowie's drawing-room. On the present occasion all the deacons of the university in whom there lurked any spark of promise were exhaustively discussed, and the upshot was that our friend Theobald was declared by Mrs. Cowie to be about the best thing she could do that afternoon. 
"'I don't know that he's a particularly fascinating young man, my dear,' said Mrs. Cowie. "'And he's only a second son. "'But then he's got his fellowship, "'and even the second son of such a man as Mr. Pontifex, the publisher, "'should have something very comfortable.' "'Why, yes, my dear,' rejoined Mrs. Allaby complacently. "'That's what one rather feels.' Chapter 10 The interview, like all other good things, had come to an end. The days were short, and Mrs. Allaby had a six miles drive to Cramsford. When she was muffled up and had taken her seat, Mr. Allaby's factotum, James, could perceive no change in her appearance, and little knew what a series of delightful visions he was driving home along with his mistress. Professor Cowie had published works through Theobald's father, and Theobald had on this account been taken in tow by Mrs. Cowie from the beginning of his university career. She had had her eye upon him for some time past, and almost as much felt it her duty to get him off her list of young men for whom wives had to be provided, as poor Mrs. Allaby did to try to get a husband for one of her daughters. She now wrote and asked him to come and see her, in terms that awakened his curiosity. When he came, she broached the subject of Mr. Allaby's failing health, and after the smoothing away of such difficulties as were only Mrs. Cowie's due, considering the interest she had taken, it was allowed to come to pass that Theobald should go to Cramsford for six successive Sundays and take the half of Mr. Allaby's duty at half a guinea a Sunday for Mrs. Cowie cut down the usual stipend mercilessly, and Theobald was not strong enough to resist. Ignorant of the plots which were being prepared for his peace of mind, and with no idea beyond that of earning his three guineas, and perhaps of astonishing the inhabitants of Cramsford by his academic learning, Theobald walked over to the rectory one Sunday morning in early December, a few weeks only after he had been ordained. He had taken a great deal of pains with his sermon, which was on the subject of geology, then coming to the fore as a theological bugbear. He showed that, so far as geology was worth anything at all, and he was too liberal entirely to poo-poo it. It confirmed the absolute historical character of the Mosaic account of the creation as given in Genesis. Any phenomena which at first sight appeared to make against this view were only partial phenomena, and broke down upon investigation. Nothing could be in more excellent taste, and when Theobald adjourned to the rectory, where he was to dine between the services, Mr. Allaby complimented him warmly upon his debut, while the ladies of the family could hardly find words with which to express their admiration. Theobald knew nothing about women. The only women he had been thrown into contact with were his sisters, two of whom were always correcting him, and a few school friends whom these had got their father to ask to Elmhurst. These young ladies had either been so shy that they and Theobald had never amalgamated, or they had been supposed to be clever and had said smart things to him. He did not say smart things himself, and did not want other people to say them. Besides, they talked about music, and he hated music, or pictures, and he hated pictures, or books, 
and except the classics, he hated books, and then sometimes he was wanted to dance with them, and he did not know how to dance, and did not want to know. At Mrs. Cowie's parties again he had seen some young ladies and had been introduced to them. He had tried to make himself agreeable, but was always left with the impression that he had not been successful. The young ladies of Mrs. Cowie's set were by no means the most attractive that might have been found in the university, and Theobald may be excused for not losing his heart to the greater number of them, while if for a minute or two he was thrown in with one of the prettier and more agreeable girls, he was almost immediately cut out by someone less bashful than himself, and sneaked off feeling as far as the fair sex was concerned like the impotent man at the pool of Bethesda. What a really nice girl might have done with him I cannot tell, but fate had thrown none such his way except his youngest sister Alethea, whom he might perhaps have liked had she not been his sister. The result of his experience was that women had never done him any good, and he was not accustomed to associate them with any pleasure. If there was a part of Hamlet in connection with them, it had been so completely cut out in the edition of the play in which he was required to act that he had come to disbelieve in its existence. As for kissing, he had never kissed a woman in his life except his sister, and my own sisters when we were all small children together. Over and above these kisses, he had until quite lately been required to imprint a solemn flabby kiss night and morning upon his father's cheek and this, to the best of my belief, was the extent of Theobald's knowledge in the matter of kissing, at the time of which I am now writing. The result of the foregoing was that he had come to dislike women, as mysterious beings whose ways were not as his ways, nor their thoughts as his thoughts. With these antecedents, Theobald naturally felt rather bashful on finding himself the admired of five strange young ladies. I remember when I was a boy myself, I was once asked to take tea at a girl's school where one of my sisters was boarding. I was then about twelve years old. Everything went off well during tea time, for the lady principal of the establishment was present. But there came a time when she went away, and I was left alone with the girls. The moment the mistress's back was turned, the head girl, who was about my own age, came up, pointed her finger at me, made a face and said solemnly, A nasty boy! All the girls followed her in rotation, making the same gesture and the same reproach upon my being a boy. It gave me a great scare. I believe I cried, and I know it was a long time before I could again face a girl without a strong desire to run away. Theobald felt at first much as I had myself done at the girls' school, but the Miss Allabys did not tell him he was a nasty boy. Their papa and mamma were so cordial, and they themselves lifted him so deftly over conversational styles, that before dinner was over Theobald thought the family to be a really very charming one, and felt as though he were being appreciated in a way to which he had not hitherto been accustomed. With dinner his shyness wore off. He was by no means plain, his academic prestige was very fair. There was nothing about him to lay hold of as unconventional or ridiculous. 
the impression he created upon the young ladies was quite favourable as that which they had created upon himself, for they knew not much more about men than he about women. As soon as he was gone, the harmony of the establishment was broken by a storm which arose upon the question which one of them it should be, who should become Mrs. Pontifex. "'My dears,' said their father, when he saw that they did not seem likely to settle the matter among themselves, "'wait till to-morrow, and then play at cards for him.' Having said which, he retired to his study, where he took a nightly glass of whiskey and a pipe of tobacco." End of chapter 10 Recording by Rhonda Fetterman